to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Now today we're going to discuss something that has been kind of a hot topic of late. At least for, you know, internet libertarian nerds like me that are always out there reading about stuff on social media, seeing the trends. And one thing, one word that you hear a lot over and over nowadays is the word Bitcoin. What the heck is a Bitcoin? Is it just like a tiny coin or something? Well, no, it's not. (laughs) It's something more than that. Now, Bitcoin is intended or promoted as a free market currency, a way to get around the fact that governments are devaluing their currencies through inflation. And here in the U.S., we got the Federal Reserve. They can just create new money at a whim. They can just punch some new digits into a little computer. Next thing you know, there's magically more money in existence. And simple supply and demand tells us the more of something that there is, the less valuable it will become. So when the U.S. government is just creating new money, well, guess what? Why do you think everything costs more at the store than it used to five years ago, ten years ago, a hundred years ago? Now, if you had five bucks a hundred years ago, you had a pretty decent chunk of change in your wallet. You could buy a few meals, a new, well, maybe not a new suit, but you could buy some clothes. You could go to a movie. You could do all that with five bucks. Now you can't even get the popcorn for five bucks. So it's very clear to anyone paying attention. But the U.S. dollar has been losing value over time. And Bitcoin is also promoted for its anonymity, the ability to buy and sell without fear of being tracked by the government. As we know, they're pretty much, the NSA is pretty much listening and watching to everything we do online or even offline. Proponents of Bitcoin claim that it can provide complete anonymity. There's no way to trace or track the person that is connected to each Bitcoin. But just what is a Bitcoin itself. You know, I've read a lot of articles on Bitcoin, both pro and con, but I'll be the first to plead ignorance. I'm not a computer programmer. I'm not a mathematical engineer. I'm just a guy with a MacBook, a microphone, a website, and weekly podcasts I put out. And I certainly have some thoughts on Bitcoin, but as far as Bitcoin goes, I'll be the first to admit I am not an expert on the subject. But my guest here with me today just so happens to be an expert on Bitcoin. He is an entrepreneur, an investor, journalist, a monetary scientist. He is the author of The Great Credit Contraction. He runs the website, runforgold.com. He also serves on the editorial board of Bitcoin Magazine and was one of the first popular bloggers to publicly recommend and promote Bitcoin before hardly anyone had ever heard of it. If you invest in or use Bitcoins, there's a pretty good chance that you've been at least indirectly influenced by this guy. Trace Mayer, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Glad to be here, Mark. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. You know, I'm really excited to have you on because uh, the topic of Bitcoin is one I've really wanted to get into for a while here. We get a lot of questions from our readers and listeners about it. Now, but first, can you tell me, when did you first discover Bitcoin and why, as a monetary scientist, did it pique your interest so much? Well, I learned about it, gosh, years ago now on the internet. Took a little bit of reading and using it, etc., to get comfortable with it. But then applying monetary science, monetary theory to it, which mainly I come from a background of the Austrian School of Economics, so like Mises, Rothbard, etc. 
I could just see there was tremendous potential with this new protocol because it's really just an internet protocol. And that's how I kind of fell down the rabbit hole. What was the price of Bitcoin when you first bought it? Well, I don't really talk too much about that. But when I first started publicly recommending it, it was about 75 cents between a nickel and 75 cents on the exchanges. And of course, I had to get comfortable with it before then. Right. And for people out there that aren't following this day to day, like you might be, what is Bitcoin currently priced at right now? I think it's around $1,000 right now, anywhere between about 800 and 1000 So, I mean, there's been, there's been tremendous upside with it, and I think we're just getting started. Bitcoin is, is a new technology that harnesses all the, every branch of science previously, you know, from electricity to mathematics, etc., and we get to use all the tools that have been built on the internet, things like GitHub that allow for cooperation without coordination to build the software code, you know, which Linux is, uh, Linus Torvaldus is the one who came up with GitHub, and it was because he had his own version control system for Linux, but it was in his own head. And now GitHub basically allows all of this to happen in a way that you don't have a hierarchical system. Because that's the big thing with Linus is he wanted people to have access to all of the source code all of the time. And that's one thing I like about Bitcoin is anybody can read and review the code. Can you describe a little more? You mentioned that Bitcoin is a protocol. And I think that's where a lot of confusion about just what Bitcoin exactly is comes from. Maybe the lack of understanding of just what that term means specifically. So can you just describe that briefly? Yeah, so when we're dealing with computers and networks and distributed systems like the Internet, you've got different protocols, and those protocols are rules that the computers and the systems will follow. And so we have hypertext transfer protocol, HTTP, or we have simple mail transfer protocol, SMTP. And these common rules, they allow us to transfer information in different ways. And so Bitcoin is a way to transfer value over computer networks. We might have value on a server, server A, and we need to move that value to server B. And Bitcoin would be the method or the way that we could do that because there would be no way to charge it back. It's solved the what's called the Byzantine generals problem. And so we could even have malicious nodes in the network, but we could still trust the blockchain. And so it's truly revolutionary as this triple entry form of bookkeeping that allows us to keep a general ledger that's distributed all over the internet and at the same time to work together, even if we can't trust everybody. Can you describe how Bitcoin was first created? You know, who came up with this whole thing? And just kind of give a, a brief summary of how Bitcoin works for kind of the everyday person. Bitcoin was uh, released into the wild by someone going by the pseudonym of Satoshi Nakamoto. He wrote an academic paper describing it as a digital cash system, and it didn't really get much traction or even real help for the first year or two. 2009, January is when it was released. All of 2009, Satoshi was pretty much the only one working on it. Gavin Andreessen came in and started help building things out a little bit later. 
And then Senator Schumer talked about Bitcoin being used for illicit purposes, and all of a sudden it had all the marketing and advertising it could want. And uh, after that, it really gained this community around it that started tinkering with it and building things on it because a lot of far-sighted venture capitalists and programmers, etc., entrepreneurs, they saw, oh wow, we could we could really disrupt the currency markets with this. You know, we could disrupt the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank, etc. And so that's really how it all started. And so they went to work and started building tools and funding companies that would make it easier to use Bitcoin. Now, for the kind of man on the street who you know may, might hear you talking about Bitcoin today and thinks, "Oh, this is pretty interesting. I want to, I want to try to get some Bitcoins." How would someone go about that? Actually acquiring these Bitcoins? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different ways out there. I've actually written a free Bitcoin guide for people. It kind of walks everybody through some of the basics. So, freebitcoinguide.com is where they can get it. I like Coinbase. They hook up right ACH with your bank account, so you can buy bitcoins there. They'll actually store the bitcoins for you because it's, uh, you know, storing bitcoins is a whole, whole industry in itself. After Coinbase, there's Blockchain.info, and if you want the safest, most secure way to store bitcoins, uh, Armory is. Uh, they've pioneered what's called cold storage for bitcoins, and that's where you can have a computer that's never touched the internet. And that's where your wallet will be held. And so that's extremely safe for using good computer security with that computer. And uh, you could store millions of dollars worth of Bitcoins very safely all by yourself. No third party. Don't have to trust anybody uh, using Armory. And so those are kind of the four different layers of wallets. And then from there, you can start ordering stuff and buying stuff and using it in ordinary transactions, whether it's Overstock.com or Zynga or buying honey caramels from the Bees Brothers. Uh, there's lots of different options out there. If someone is just looking to transfer value or something like that, how is Bitcoin such an advantage over just maybe simply using PayPal or a wire transfer? What, what's the real advantage for people to use Bitcoin over those normal methods that people already use? Bitcoin lowers the cost in three key areas. It lowers the cost in terms of time, money, and privacy. In terms of time, you can instantly send a transaction. The other party knows that it's instantly good, that it can't be charged back. So you're not waiting months in some cases, like with wire transfers or days or weeks. There's no fees, little or no fees. So in terms of money, it's a lot cheaper. It's a lot cheaper than credit cards, for example, or wire transfers. And in terms of privacy, I think this is another huge area. You know, did you shop at Target? They just had 110 million credit cards and other personal information compromised. Yeah, I just got an email from them, and it, I don't know if it's directly related, but right after I, I got that, or right after that kind of came out that the target hacking had occurred, I had my PayPal account hacked, I had my email account hacked, I had my credit cards messed with. So, I mean, clearly the systems we have now in place are not exactly totally secure. Yeah, but you know the reason the reason that you're even vulnerable to that is because of anti-money laundering and know your client, know your customer rules. It's because you have to tie your identity to the credit card or to the bank account. You know, with Bitcoin you don't have to do that. So, Bitcoin users would be completely unaffected by a hack of Target's system. 
I don't think people fully appreciate the degree to which they're vulnerable because every time you swipe a credit card somewhere, they get your name, they get your address, they get the credit card number, they get everything they need to steal your identity. And can you trust every taco shop out there or every little smoothie shop or every little vendor uh, overseas when you're out, you know, uh, visiting Machu Picchu or over in Europe or whatever? I mean, can you trust all of those people with all that information and all that data? And why trust them if you don't have to? You know, if you'd used cash at Target, you wouldn't be subject to all this identity theft that's going to be a result from their system being hacked. And so likewise, if you'd use Bitcoin, you wouldn't be affected either. So I think it's almost incumbent on consumers to demand that their uh, people that they want to buy stuff from use Bitcoin because, you know, they're the ones who have to pay the costs in terms of identity theft and the hacking. You know, all this time that you have to deal with cleaning up this mess that was made because of Target, and it's not necessarily Target's fault. They could have done everything uh, right that they possibly could have to secure it. And the real fault lies with the government because the government's the one that is requiring the name be tied to the credit card or to the bank account. And that's where the big problem is. On the subject of anonymity, I know as far as the Bitcoins themselves, your your name, your information, that stuff won't become tied to them in any way. But what about when you actually want to cash out those Bitcoins or what have you say at those exchanges? I know the government has, there's been a lot of talk of certain regulations coming to clamp down on the exchanges. Do you see any kind of laws or regulations being passed that will kind of hinder what is the current level of anonymity for Bitcoins? Or are there just ways that Bitcoin users will be able to get around all of that? Uh, well, I mean, there's already applicable anti-money laundering and know your customer regulations that would apply to the exchanges or at least any exchanges that are dealing with bank accounts and things of that nature because FinCEN, the federal government agency, has issued guidance. It's not binding or determinative, but anybody who wants to play in that space and make money and build something needs to play by those rules. So, I mean, that's already in place. But anybody who's actually in Bitcoin, they can use Bitcoin however they want. And whether that's meeting somebody at Starbucks with a bag of cash and, and sending Bitcoins to them or whatever, or maybe there aren't applicable laws because they're doing it out in the middle of the ocean where there's no particular jurisdiction. I mean, there's a lot of ways people can use Bitcoin however they really want to. And that's really the nature of it. I mean, it's decentralized and peer-to-peer -peer protocol. So nobody's in charge of it. And nobody can really stop you from doing what you kind of want to with it. As you mentioned earlier, you are a student of Austrian economics. Can you explain how you see Bitcoin fitting in with the Austrian concepts of what money is? In my book, The Great Credit Contraction, I first I like to start with the definitions of money, money substitutes, a new class I call illusions, and Either money, money substitutes, or illusions, they can all be currency. And so currency, I define as what we use in our ordinary day-to-day -day transactions. So money has to be a real, a tangible asset. That way, it's nobody's liability. There's no counterparty risk there. Gold or silver would be money. And then a money substitute, that would be like a gold or silver certificate. But then you have things like illusions, like Federal Reserve notes or euros or yen that are really nothing at all, but we still use them as currency. 
but they can become absolutely worthless. Where I place Bitcoin, and I actually wrote an article on Run to Gold called Why Bitcoin is Tangible. I place it in the same class as gold or silver. And the reason for that is because it's tangible. And the reason it's tangible is because it's limited in amount by its internal characteristics, by mathematical law, as opposed to being limited in amount by perhaps counterfeiting laws or, or other ways that they try to limit Federal Reserve notes by external characteristics. And so gold is also limited in amount by its internal characteristics, by chemical law. And so that's why I put Bitcoin as money and also a currency is because it's limited in amount by its internal characteristics. Therefore, it's tangible, it's real, and it's not an illusion. It's a precious number, just like gold or silver is a precious metal. I want to ask you about this case with Silk Road. This is kind of like a, a black market website. People exchange drugs, all sorts of other items, not just illegal items. But uh, that site was clamped down on by the FBI. They arrested this guy, Ross Ulbrich, who is the supposed guy who had run the site. And I'm reading this article that says, U.S. authorities have $25 million in bitcoins from this seizure. So I'm just trying to kind of break down here. How does the government actually seize a bitcoin from somebody? How do they hold them? I mean, how are they able to do that? Well, most likely what they did is they were able to penetrate Ross's server, compromise the private keys to the Bitcoins, create a transaction that would move the Bitcoins from one address to another, assign that transaction with the private key that they had compromised, and poof, they've now got control of the Bitcoins. So that's most likely how they uh, seized the Bitcoins. And yeah, they've got $25 million worth of them that they want to sell at a sheriff's auction. Yeah, and this article I was reading earlier, it said that they don't actually know how to get rid of them. They're not really sure how to even liquidate them, which I found pretty interesting. Maybe just typical of government. Well, there's a lot of people at work there. It's definitely going to be an interesting job. Yeah, hopefully whichever FBI or FBI multiple employees are in charge of those private keys, hopefully they don't collude and steal them. <laughs> oh, we got hacked by the NSA. They did it. <laughs> we don't know uh, what happened. <laughs> And there'd be no way for them to prove whether they were hacked or whether they embezzled the coins themselves. There'd be no way to prove that. So, I mean, Bitcoin is a very, uh, they can be very squirrely. <laughs> Do you consider Bitcoin as it is right now today to be considered money under the Austrian definition, under those concepts? Or do you just consider it a medium of exchange that has the chance to become money? How do you view that? Well, Going back to those definitions, there's money, money substitutes, or illusions, and all of those can be currency. A lot of people conflate money and currency as a definition, definitionally, and then they want to say, oh, well, in order for something to be money, it's got to have a certain amount of people using it. Well, I kind of put that in the currency requirement. You know, if we're going to have requirements for currency, then I'd put number of people using it over there. But keep in mind, we've got millions of people who use Bitcoin, and at the height of the Roman Empire, they had maybe a couple hundred thousand people living in Rome. That's when they were using gold and silver for money, right, and for currency. And so Bitcoin's already several times larger of a community using it as money and currency than the, than the largest empire in the world at the time, a couple thousand years ago. 
I just want to run through a few objections to Bitcoin that I've come across in my reading on the subject. I'm sure you're familiar with a few of the more prominent Austrian economists and people that are influenced by Austrian economics that have had some criticisms. You've had Gary North has labeled Bitcoin a Ponzi scheme. Uh, Peter Schiff has compared it to tulip mania. What do you say to those kind of overall criticisms? Do you think they just don't understand how the protocol works or is there any legitimacy to that at all? Yeah, it's really difficult when you combine ignorance and arrogance, and it can be very harmful to your financial performance. Back in February of 2013, I actually spent about 30 minutes with Peter Schiff, a one-on-one, answering questions about Bitcoin, etc. And somebody surreptitiously recorded it and uh, put it up on YouTube. So if you search Trace Mayer, Peter Schiff, Bitcoin, you'll see the video. And in the video, he says, well, maybe I'm just not smart enough for Bitcoin. (laughs) And I think that was a surprisingly rare but extremely accurate and truthful statement by Peter Schiff. Bitcoin is a very complicated, mentally complicated area. So you have to, one, you have to have just a general IQ of a certain level in order to kind of grasp it. But two, you have to also have technical ability. You have to have abilities, you know, with computers and understand how that works. And then you also have to have a large degree of mathematical competence. And one of the things that a lot of the Austrian school economists like to, to argue is they argue from Mises that, you know, we can't learn anything additional from math than we already know in language or through other knowledge. And, you know, while that's true, they take it a step further and seem to make the, the assertion that you don't really need to understand math. And I think that that's a terrible mistake. When was the last time that Peter Schiff or Gary North solved some vector calculus problems? Do they even know what the Byzantine general's problem is? I mean, that's taught in every basic computer networking course in college. I sure don't, that's for sure. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, do they even know what that is? I mean, when was the last time anybody uh, dealt with homomorphic properties on any type of distributed cash ledger system? When was the last time Gary North solved a derivative or an integral problem? I mean, not to say that his opinion isn't valid, but Rothbard made, you know, made a very accurate observation that, you know, it's no problem to have an opinion. But if you have a vociferous opinion on something of which you are completely ignorant, that's not a very wise thing to be doing. And, you know, I I hate to make the assertion, but uh, it seems to be fairly obvious the Peter Schiff, Gary North, a lot of these guys. So one, they don't have the mathematical competence. Two, they don't have the computer or networking or technical competence. Three, uh, they're misinterpreting or misapplying uh, things like the regression theorem. And Bitcoin is here and it's functioning. So like if it conflicts with the way somebody interprets the regression theorem or anything else, well, then that theorem needs to be changed because we've now got something else that's uh, obviously proven it wrong. And so, you know, I think that I think that the market has a way of rewarding solutions. And at the end of the day, the market doesn't care what your opinion is. The market rewards who it rewards financially for adding value, and it punishes financially the people who don't add value. And Last time I checked, when I started recommending Bitcoin, it's up 391,000%. You know, I mean, where's Peter Schiff and Gary Norris' financial scoreboard? 
I mean, if they're so right and if their Austrian school of economics is so helpful, then why aren't they rich? Richer than they could even imagine. You know, so uh, so that you know, that's kind of what I have to say about that. <laughs> I know Bitcoin itself has kind of a hard cap on the the number of coins that can ultimately be mined. But is there anything that can stop Bitcoin competitors from just replicating ad infinitum and leading to hyperinflation? How do you see that? There's something called network effects, and the Bitcoin network or the Bitcoin community, Bitcoin is so much more than just the software code. I mean, there's hundreds of, of, I mean, there's millions and millions of hours of manpower that are behind the Bitcoin code, the Bitcoin companies, the understanding Bitcoin, educating people on Bitcoin, the brand awareness, uh, all of that, those are all network effects. So sure, you can copy the code and create an, another cryptocurrency, whether it's Litecoin or Namecoin or Doggycoin or Coinye Westcoin or whatever it is. But it won't have those same network effects. And it might actually be able to outcompete Bitcoin in some particular way, in which case I think that's great. Decentralizing the currency markets, competition. Coke is a better company because of Pepsi. So likewise, I think that Bitcoin will be a better company with the more competition it faces. But I don't think that we can just say that copying the software code copies everything else about bitcoin because it doesn't it doesn't re, you know you can't just copy the bitpays and the mount goxes and the uh, krakens and the blockchain.info wallets and all of that, that infrastructure that's behind it another criticism I, I, I come across is this concern that either one entity or a group of people could own over half 51 percent of the bitcoins in existence and alter the protocol or cheat. I'm looking at an article here that says 927 people own half of all the Bitcoins. So is there anything valid to that concern or can you kind of dispel that notion? Well, that particular concern is uh, completely baseless. Owning Bitcoins does not give you any control or power over the protocol itself. That is determined by the Bitcoin miners and by processing power. There are some other altcoins out there that have what's called a proof of stake, where it does weight your ability to influence the protocol based on how many coins you have, like PureCoin, for example. But that, that particular functionality is not in Bitcoin. But as far as having control of processing power and miners, etc., uh, yeah, that's a legitimate concern. I want to just briefly, before I let you go, touch on a couple questions from a couple listeners of the podcast. This one's from Shane Whistler, a former guest on the podcast. His question is, why should society prefer as a currency something that is based at bottom at doing useless work, thereby wasting humanity's productive capacity? For example, when gold is highly valued, it leads to increased production of gold, a very useful good. But when Bitcoin is highly valued, it leads to a huge waste of electricity. I guess what he's really saying is that this mining process that you're describing doesn't really produce anything productive. It just produces the Bitcoin. And his question is, would this electricity be put to better use elsewhere? Why is what he considers this waste a good thing for humanity? Yeah, I think your key phrase there is what he considers waste. Subjective value theory from the Austrian School of Economics. The market will determine whether it's wasteful or not. And the way the market will determine that is by how the resources get allocated. And so if the resources, if the pricing signals send messages to the miners such that that's a 
way to use electricity, then that's the way of the market saying that this is a useful and valuable activity to be engaged in. I've also got a question for Brian McWilliams. He's a contributor over at our website. And he wonders, Trace, do you see a tipping point where the average person will begin to use Bitcoin kind of in lieu of dollars? I mean, do you think there is any way we can overtake the dollars or will it just continue to be sort of an alternative to the current monetary systems that are forced upon us? Well, I think we already hit on the decentralization of the currency markets. And I think that that process is just going to continue to accelerate and uh, and go faster and faster. And, you know, a world reserve currency doesn't just get there by accident. It has to claw and and work its way there through sheer economic force and power. And so if Bitcoin can actually compete with the dollar or the euro, etc., it's you know, it's going to have to work really hard to do that. And that's where Bitcoin actually has a lot of advantages to something like gold. Uh, because gold is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. The dollar, you know, a lot of people complain about the dollar, but the dollar is actually a very advanced financial instrument. And one of the reasons it's so advanced is because it's extensible. Uh, it does have its problems. It can become worthless. It's just an illusion, but it's still extensible. And so you can build and do all types of things on top of it. In the information age, math is money. And <laughs> where is that any more real than in Bitcoin, right? <laughs> Certainly more real than the U.S. dollar. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a big problem with the U.S. dollar or with Target. Like with Target, uh, what if the hackers get in and change the financial statements and then erase the tracks that they were in there meddling with it? I mean, they don't know what their books should be. But with Bitcoin, you've got this decentralized general ledger that has an accurate accounting of all the transfers that have happened. So you can't... Uh, it can't be hacked or messed with like, like the others, like Target could or what have you. Right, because we solved the Byzantine general's problem. So, I mean, like this is a big deal because everybody thought the Byzantine general's problem was impossible. And then Satoshi went and solved it. <laughs> Well, everything's impossible to solve until someone goes out and solves it, you know? Bitcoin is, I think, going to give the dollar a real run for the crown because Bitcoin is extensible like the dollar is, but at the same time is limited in amount like gold. And so it's got actually the best of both. So I think it could be extremely competitive to any of these other currencies that are out there. Trace, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Before we let you go, can you just give a quick little summary of where people can find your current writings and, uh, and plug any other projects you got going on? Yeah, so uh, run2gold.com, howtovanish.com, and the free Bitcoin guide. And uh, from there, you'll get on different email lists that I have, etc., and uh, probably be able to, to see any interviews or any other things that I announce, etc. Trace Meyer, everybody. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Thanks, you too, Mark. And we will be back after a quick word from our sponsors. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Do your kids want to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and a non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? 
What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? Get your copy today at meetrompaul.com, also available on Amazon. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Visit meetrompaul.com. Keep the liberty movement moving. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. <laughs> you're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, guys, and thanks for joining me here today, back on the Lions of Liberty podcast. I was really glad to have Trace Mayer on the show today to break down just exactly what this Bitcoin thing is that everybody's been talking about, this new currency. Now, as I mentioned during the interview, there are a lot of Bitcoin skeptics out there, including well-known libertarians, Austrian economists like Gary North, Peter Schiff, and I think those guys have a lot of good points. At the same time, like I said, I'm no expert here. I'm not a computer engineer. I'm not a computer programmer. I don't totally understand the math behind this. And there certainly may be some validity to a lot of these criticisms you're hearing on Bitcoin out there. Yeah, the price, like as Trey said, went from 75 cents. Now it's over a thousand bucks. If you look at it on the surface, it might have a lot of the qualities of a classic pump and dump scheme. There's a lot of proponents out there building it up. At the same time, I have no reason to think Mr. Mayor on the show today is anything but honest with me in discussing the reasons that he promotes and advocates for Bitcoin. Now, I don't own or use Bitcoins myself. I still use, you know... Dollars? I use PayPal. <laughs> but hey, like I said, my PayPal got hacked. It's clearly not secure. Luckily, I didn't lose any money. They got they got some good systems out there that can identify hacking. But it certainly caused me a little bit of annoyance and made me worry about it a little bit. So maybe Bitcoin is one way that I can avoid that in the future. It's something I'll think about. Because whether or not Bitcoin is the answer or is the new currency or is legitimate or whether it's just a Ponzi scheme or a pump and dump scheme or whatever the critics are saying... Either way, the idea of a free market digital currency that can circumvent the state is certainly an exciting prospect. You know, Bitcoin, money, and the emerging cryptocurrency trend is definitely a subject that I'm, I'm beginning to educate myself on, and it's something that we'll be exploring more in the future here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, which of course you can find over at lionsofliberty.com. For the full podcast archive, you can go to lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. And of course, you can subscribe over on iTunes. You can use the Stitcher radio app. If you're an RSS guy, you can use an RSS reader. And again, I don't really even know about RSS that much. That's how little of a computer expert I am. I just know that people use it. So we have it available. And don't forget to come connect with us on social media. We're everywhere. Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. On Twitter, we're at Lions of Liberty. You can look us up on Google+. Find us there. We want to connect with you. We want to interact with you. 
I don't want the show to just be where I come and spout off for 30, 35 minutes. I could do that easily. Not a problem. Just ask my girlfriend or any of my friends. I can go on rants all day long. I want to make this show a place where you guys can come and listen to other interesting people have a conversation with me, and we can all learn together about some things. And I hope that's what we accomplished here with our discussion with Trace Mayer about Bitcoin today. Guys, I also, I haven't done this in a while. I'd love to get your feedback. You can contact me personally, Mark, M-A-R-C, not a K, guys, it's a C, Mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. You can send me questions. You can send me hate mail if you want. We got our first hate mail this week. I'm pretty excited. That's how we know we're doing something right. If people are getting a little angry. Eek. Oh, it doesn't have to be hate mail. You can just say nice things. Tell me you listen to the podcast. (laughs) I can use encouragement too. But you know, I, I encourage you guys to look more into Bitcoin. And I hope this podcast today served as kind of a launching point for your exploration on this subject and on many other subjects, which we'll talk about in the future, because, guys, I've got some awesome guests lined up in the next few weeks. I'm really excited about it, and I hope you will be, too, and I hope you'll come back each and every week to find out and to listen and learn along with me. And until then, guys, don't forget, live long and live free. Mastering is John Daugherty.